Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge engine failure, it appears, for Erica. The smoke funneling out of the back of the car. Stanfield drives by. On this episode, Tony Pedragon and Phil Burgess join to take a look at the finals and championship implications. And it's Trip Tatum for the first time in his career. 370 flat, 330 miles an hour. We're going to break down the race, the title contenders, how they got the job done, and who needs to do better next year. Bobby Bodie's 074, and he blows the body off the car going through the finish line stripe. Bobby maintains control of the automobile. This is the NHRA Insider. Number 16 is going to take out number one. He left on a by a day and a half. Both Manson Hines bikes are out, and it is crazy town at Pro Stock Motorcycle. Hey everybody, it's Brian Loans. Welcome to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. As mentioned, we have Tony Pedragon and Phil Burgess joining today as it is officially our first postseason show. We're going to talk about everything we saw in Pomona at the In-N-Out Burger NHRA Finals. Going to talk about the race teams that certainly won the race, won their respective championships, those race teams that maybe fell off the table in the countdown and what we can talk about and look for out of big-name teams that might not have lived up to expectations for the 20. 23 season now the close of this show will include an entire section discussion chat if you will on the rumors that we've all been hearing and the three of us hear a lot of stuff i'm not saying we hear everything but between the three of us we hear a good amount of stuff and there is plenty uh bubbling under the surface right now both good bad and otherwise that we're going to talk about at the end of this show so make sure you stick around to the end but it's a very lively conversation you're going to hear between the three of us as well when I reflect back on the NHRA In-N-Out Burger Finals, um, I think I probably come away with it uh, with many of the same thoughts and lessons that I took with me that uh, most fans did, I think. I mean, really, there is probably no singular moment more dramatic that I have experienced in my career in this sport than what Doug Coletta did in the final round to win his first championship, uh, beating a very strong opponent in Leah Pruitt, doing so with the same style of just show up and get your job done ethic that he has for his entire career, the way that the entire sport and in some ways the entire motorsports world has reacted to his championship has been nothing short of astonishing. Um, in so many ways, that there's no such thing as being universally loved, but Doug is probably about as close as anybody's ever been in this sport to that in this moment. Uh, even his closest competitors, all of them deferred to him uh, when they talked about who people were pulling for for a title, those racers that were out, uh, Doug Coletta's name was at the tip of everyone's tongue. Even Leah Pruitt, who came up second to Doug in the points, came up second to Doug in the final round, um, You know, was not all that distraught about it. She had an incredible season, best season of her career, poised for more success going forward. And um, to lose to a guy like Doug that personifies, I think, a lot of what many of us see in drag racing uh, as the great things uh, was not the worst thing in the world. So that was huge. You know, the way that Chad Green uh, manages to, to, to win the round against Robert Height, then win the race on the same day his son wins his second race in top alcohol dragster. Another great storyline. Chad able to knock out a top five finish, uh, seemingly improbable from the beginning of the season for this team. They've been around a couple of years, but they really came into their own. They became a legitimate contending, now a race-winning team with that final victory in Pomona. Got to spend some time with them in the winter circle Sunday night. It was infectious. Their excitement, uh, their gratitude, their joy for that moment was was really fantastic. Um, 
you know, in pro stock, Aaron Stanfield wins the race and, and effectively ran out of the racetrack. He won the race and was gone, uh, I think, even before the winner's circle got done because of the fact that uh, his wife was uh, very much expecting uh, baby number two. And I don't mean in the next couple of weeks. It was like within that 24-hour stretch, he needed to get home. So he wins the race, uh, vacates the racetrack, and, and makes a run for the airport. Uh, best of luck to them and their family as they uh, expand again with another child. And then, of course, there is Gage Herrera, who did what Gage Herrera has done all season long, just uh, thoroughly and utterly dominated the competition, did so with a smile on his face and his aw-shuck style of approach, but uh, went up there and just tore everybody's hearts out of their chest again for the umpteenth time this year. So we're going to have a discussion about Gage, about that whole season, about maybe what we should be looking for for Pro Stock Motorcycle next year, some impending changes there. And, you know, one thing um, I want to mention before we get into the discussion with Tony and Phil is that uh, the amount of excitement that was around the finals was beyond anything I've ever experienced. You know, the idea that these championship races coming down to the end really uh, heightened everybody's awareness of not only our sport, but um, of the level of competition we have seen over the course of the season and what we continue to see. And, the way that drag racing evolves and, and has evolved in its in its past, in its history, especially on a professional level, is very gradually and then kind of all at once. And, you know, for better or worse, we're entering a period of time, in my opinion, in this sport where we have a growing number of full-time cars. Very good thing. But what that continues to do is when you have more full-time cars, which we need, we need all we can get – it continues to widen the gulf between what a full-time and part-time car is. And, you know, to me, this is this is like one of those breakwater or, or breakwater moment might not be the best term, but it, it is a moment in time where, especially in the nitro categories, when we look at what is available out there for people to do, where they can use their cars, how they can use their cars. When we enter a situation where we have, 16 17 full-time cars and then you have let's call it five to six four to five five to six very good part-time cars and then you have kind of the next year below that of, of guys that'll run a handful of races a year i want those people to be racing their cars but i don't necessarily want them showing up to a place where they don't have a chance to qualify and that's the cold hard reality of, of where we're kind of moving back to and you know, this is where we need a, a more robust match racing circuit, in my opinion. Um, I, I look at I look at small teams that can get out a few times a year. If they were able to get out an additional couple times a year and get paid to go do it and effectively test and, and work on their program so when they do come to the big events, they're able to make a really honest-to-God run at qualifying and they're not testing parts or testing tune-up ideas during qualifying sessions, you know, that is, that is the next kind of growth step. But as you're going to find out at the end of this show, there's a lot of stuff coming, and there's a lot of a lot of stuff coming that you might have not even heard about. There's some stuff coming that I didn't even hear about until we started kibitzing about this show, and you're gonna you're gonna hear about it at the end. But um, I, I think as we are at the end of this season and look forward to this season coming and, and a few seasons to come, the number of full time cars continues to grow. And again, that's going to put more and more pressure on the part-time cars that, that I want to see out racing. I want to see them out doing something. I want to see them out garnering and gathering and growing a fan base. Um, and I want to see them doing it in a way that they can feel successful. So when they make the step to come 
and try to compete and try to qualify and try to run with the Doug Colettas of the world, with the Brittany Forces of the world, with the Steve Torrance of the world. They may not feel like they're on equal footing, but they at least feel as though they belong to stand on the same mountain. And that is a big difference. And, you know, we're, again, we're, 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 we're looking at stuff in a different way, in a different prison than we have even five years ago because the counts are going up. And again, all of this is a great problem to have. All of this is a great situation to find ourselves in. I just want us as a sport to look at it and manage it and use it as the strength and leverage that it should be and not have it as a situation where, hell, I can't run 369, so why bother showing up? I don't want that to happen because it happens in all forms of drag racing. I've watched it happen in radar racing. I've watched it happen in pro mod racing over the years before the, you know, many of the rules were brought back in. Um, you know, it's happened a lot, and I don't want it to see it happen with fuel cars uh, for, for a very number of, of reasons. But the most important one is we need as many of them we can get, and we want to have people competitive and, and feeling as though they are competitive and growing their programs and getting better and evolving forward. That's how all of us get better ultimately. So there's my little diatribe rant to get things started. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it will be time for Tony Pedragon and Phil Burgess to join me, and a rollicking discussion will ensue. Talk a lot about the race, talk a lot about the people, talk a lot about the implications of a countdown that some teams did well in and other teams did not. Don't go anywhere. All right, we are back here in the NHRA Insider Podcast. I am joined by my two guests simultaneously on this post-Pomona episode I got Phil Burgess. I got Tony Pedragon. Phil, how you doing out there in California? I'm great. Uh, this is still coming down from the high of Pomona. And how about you? How about you, Tony? Well, it's starting to cool off in Indy, uh, but you know, I think um, it's been pretty quiet holiday weekend or holiday week, and I think it's going to be quiet until right after this uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Then, then uh, release the hounds. <laughs> Before we get into anything that's happening in the future, let's talk about some stuff that happened in the uh, the very recent past. You know, Phil, you and I just just before we got on the phone had a, a media availability with Doug Coletta, and I think the one thing you and I both came out of that thinking about was how this guy, in attitude and in presentation, seems like a different dude. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely uh, you know relaxed, and I don't know, it's like you know, the, the cliche the, the weight of the world came off his shoulders with that championship. But yeah, he, he was uh, he was definitely a more open and, and uh, definitely a, a different Doug than we've seen in years past. You know, one of the funny stories is the fact that um, and, and Grace Wolbing of Speedsport News asked him about this. They forgot the trophy in California, so he, he talked about he talked about how big and heavy the trophy is, and he mentioned the fact that he thought somebody would just kind of take care of it and get it shipped to him, which eventually they will. But it was kind of funny that they got on the jet to go home, and everybody looked at each other and said, "You have that thing, right?" And nobody did. So. You know, Tony, we talk about a guy like a guy like Doug and, and this idea of the weight coming off his shoulders. You know what that feeling is to win your first championship. I'm guessing for him it's probably even 10 times as strong as even it was for a guy like you. It has to be. I think to a lot of uh, – to a big point, it's liberating for Doug. He's had to deal with the stigma for all these years of having finished runner-up and, and really in the manner that, he, that it happened to him, you know, not – not even more recently when the parachute came out in Vegas, you know, when he was battling Steve Torrance, but you know, Doug has really been remembered, not just for his talent um, and his ability, but, but for losing the championship yeah. with Tony Schumacher and, you know, the, the run they call the run ironically. And um, you know, he's carried that throughout his career and 
That's all that anyone has asked him when he's gotten close, when they've won races. Yeah. And, you know, I think for a lot of reasons, we should see a different Doug at this stage. Yeah, and, and he did address that, didn't he, Phil, in the call? Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. He asked, you know, you know, what he's got ahead next year, and he said he thought he'd come in to next season with more confidence, which is really amazing. A guy's got almost 600 career starts. You think he's got all the confidence in the world. He's won, you know, 51 races. Um, but to say that he's going to be more confident next year coming in, that might be trouble for everybody. Yeah, I think it might be. And, you know, it was a it was a really poetic way for the thing to end. And, and you know, in my you guys have way more experience at this than I do, but I've never seen anybody from the, from the local track level to this level win a championship and be as universally heralded as Doug. I mean, I ran into people that specifically – Michael Heiner, for example. Michael Heiner, I saw him early in the evening at the awards uh, gala, and he told me, I never stay at these things, and I'm staying because I want to hear what Doug has to say. And, and Phil, it's a universal sentiment. It's it's pretty unbelievable. It, it is. I, I mentioned to, uh, to Doug that I talked to Joel Amato uh, for a different article I was writing, and that was the first thing he said, how great it was to see Doug. Doug was so deserving. And I guess Joe spends a lot of time on the Internet, more time than I thought he was. He said, I've been all over the internet. I haven't seen a single bad word about Doug, and everybody's happy for Doug. And, you know, even uh, Matt said, Matt Hagan said, that even Leah was happy for Doug. So what does that tell you? Yeah, and Tony, I think, I mean, her actions did not show, and she wanted it. We knew that she wanted it. But, you know, there was something that came over Leah over the last couple of races, and specifically in Pomona, Tony, that was visible to me. I mean, there was a lot of calmness there that went above and beyond what we had seen out of her the rest of the season. Yeah, and I think the the process was uh, just a driver getting in sync with the car. You know, they had an up-and-down year. They saw some success, but there's no question. They had a car that was very consistent, and I think it took a while for her to get in sync with the car yeah. and really start to realize that, you know, that that opportunity was going to be there. Um, you know, I, I, I know that we really didn't expect it. We didn't expect yeah. it to go down to the last race of the year, not with them. Uh, we fully expected Steve to be there, and he was. He didn't disappoint. But, you know, and we even heard uh, her say it and Tony Stewart say it, that, you know, they, they really – nobody thought they would be there. I don't, I'm not saying they didn't have enough confidence right. in themselves, but it just goes to show you when you make good decisions, when you have good chemistry, when you have a good work environment, you have good people, you hire good talent, and you have a driver that rises to the occasion, when it's all said and done, that's all it takes. And they peaked at the right time and – um, you know, I think um, I think the fact that it it got away from them in the final round, they can still look back and yeah. say, "Look, the, we didn't expect we didn't expect yeah. any of that." And and I think to make matters better for them, you know, they lost to Doug Coletta. So I think yeah. Doug had so much more at stake going into that final round than than Leah did. And look, hey, I, hey. go for it, Phil. Yeah, so Tony, I mean, that's obviously a, a big deal. You're in the final round. It's winner take all. You haven't been a former champion driver and a race winning driver. Can you kind of give us an insight? I mean, maybe your first final round with John Forrest or that when you're in the final, you know, what that means, what, what your emotions are. Well, for Doug, because he had been there so many times, uh, winning a championship, what it does is it, you always have a level of confidence. You always believe, you know, all the cliche, the things that, that, you know, positive thinkers uh, that you have to do when you wake up in the morning, you look at the, you know, the possibilities, but I, I think for Doug, it, it was so much more different than the first time he was really in that situation in 07, I believe, or maybe it was 08. 
when he lost to Tony Schumacher. So, you know, Doug had everything. All the stars had really lined up for him because when when you're on the receiving end of losing a championship, whether it's once or twice or so many times, uh, you know, drivers like myself, you go back in the history of a lot of good drivers, Matt Hagen, Ron Capps, John Force, you can go back in their history and realize that, you know, these guys just didn't wake up and, and, and get into a winning situation and a winning car and a winning team. It really takes, um, you know, I hate to say it takes losing because that's not the case for everyone. We've seen some drivers, you go back to 92 when Cruz got his first year in funny car, right? you know, so, so sometimes everything aligns and you have the talent, you catch the brakes and then you do it with performance. Everything just for some line up, but that's not the case for a lot of them. So I know that for a driver like Doug Coletta, because he had been there and so close so many times, there wasn't any question in my mind that this guy was not prepared for that moment. And I think what it allowed him to do was silence all the noise, just get away from all the distractions, all the things that come with it. And when you go through it the first or second time, and and you come out empty-handed, uh, you know. I think I think for a driver, it's like, well, at some point, I, I've got to I've got to do a little bit more. It's in my hands, even though it's in the hands of the car and the tuner. But it, it just everything came together for Doug. So you know, I think the fact that Leah now has been in that situation, if she has this opportunity again next year or the year after, she's probably going to be a better driver. She's going to be better prepared for it. Um, you know, and I think just for Doug, I, I just I don't think that there was anything that was going to stand in his way. Um, you know, Steve Torrance once again had a good car. Leah had a good car. It fell off. But, you know, both both cars ran the same thing. Doug comes out a winner. So I just think that he was a force to be reckoned with on that day. And it is because of everything that he had gone through in his career to that point. You know, Phil, agree or disagree that the semifinal win – for Leah over Steve Torrance was the biggest round win of her career. And I realize she's won championships in, in other categories, but that to me was like that to me is one of those tipping point moments for a person that gets placed in that in that situation. Somebody who she's had, you know, a legitimate kind of rivalry with, whether it's on or off the racetrack for many years, and it has definitely been on the professional level for the last several, but that was just a massive round win for that team and for her personally. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, th- I think that, you know, we saw, you know, Doug beat Justin Ashley in, in the first half there. And I think, so we knew, you know, that on the other side of the ladder, there was be one of those two guys going, or drivers going for a first championship. And I think that probably that went over Steve, because I think a lot of people thought it would be Steve and Doug. I think that gave her a ton of confidence, probably gave yeah. Neil a ton of confidence. They got down there, they got lane choice for the final. Uh, I think, think that was a huge shot in the arm and maybe the, the thing that could have carried her over the top. Uh, let's look now at a different scenario in Top Fuel in the countdown, and, and we have to look at Justin Ashley, and, and we have to look at a, at a regular season with a half dozen victories, um, and then honestly, not a lot to show over the last six races. So, you know, I, I, I we, we talk about this this season and the strategy that goes into competing at this level. Was it strategic mistakes? Was it something else, Phil? When you look back over the year for Justin Ashley, where do you think the train? Uh, if didn't it didn't come totally off the tracks, but the wheels started squeaking pretty bad by the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you look at his record in the countdown, I think he won, uh, you know, one round maybe each of the races. I think he got beat in the first round in Vegas. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he's got you know a solid team behind him. He's obviously you know fairly flawless behind the wheel. I don't know. I, I it's hard to put a finger on him. I mean, they qualified well in all those races. Um, 
You know, you, you look look back. It, it, I don't know. Just, just to your point, wheels kind of fell off. Tony, what do you think? Because and, and really, it was not as bad as last year, uh, but it certainly wasn't wasn't the effort they needed to to be competitive up to the end. When it's close enough to be a carbon copy, you really start to wonder, you know, Brian, and you and I, I mean, this question was asked to, to Mike Green. It was asked yeah. to Justin Ashley when we had him on the podcast. We had him on the stage at Brainerd. This was well before the countdown started. They had some good momentum. They were still the car to beat. Um, it was a couple of cars that were coming on strong, but we, we asked him exactly that. And, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, to, to just, you know, the hyperbole, yeah. the you know, the, the standard, well, we have to, you know, we have to be a better team, but, you know, sometimes you have to step outside of that circle. And I, you know, I'm not saying that they didn't do that because right. Mike green, I mean, you don't win six races in the regular season and not be good. You can win one or two on accident, but not six of them, right. but you know, whatever it is. And, and I think it's a combination of things and it just goes to show you you can be the best driver because there's some talent out there. There's some talent that, that are not in good cars. And there's some good cars that lack some talent. No disrespect to any of them because they put their their health on the lines. And I will always have a high level of respect for the drivers, even when they don't want to give themselves as much credit as they deserve. You, you have to have a good car. You have to have a good driver. And you have to have good timing. So it just goes to show you, it's not an easy thing to win a championship. And when you get that close to having that opportunity, um, you may or may not have that opportunity again for some, you might, it, we might see a repeat. We might see a couple of other drivers, but for Justin Ashley, you know, it comes down to this. They need to be good in the countdown, whatever they were doing in the regular season, they were good. They were consistent. They were quick. But if you look at the numbers, they fell off. Their performance fell off. Their consistency yes. fell off. And when the competition improves, you've got a problem on your hands. So they've got to look at every one of those areas and figure out how they can do it better, but most importantly, how they do it better in the last six races. Phil. And I, I, I spoke earlier. It was uh, Dallas. We lost in the first round. Vegas, obviously, he went and uh, went to the final there. That's right. But, uh, yeah. But, uh, but obviously, yeah, something changed from, from what they did in the, in the in the regular season, and you look at just the, their numbers in the in the playoffs, they just weren't there. And, and you know, it's like any any team, any sport, you got to be good in the playoffs. You have to be. And you know, one of the questions I was going to pose to you guys until I actually looked at the information and and thought better of asking it, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway because it's a fun discussion. It's like, all right, which car should we place higher expectations on next year when we look at you know number, let's call it number five through number twelve? And the answer is all of them. In a, in a way, I mean, because when we look at this this list of top fuel cars from number five to number twelve in the points, Milliken won multiple races. Langdon's a former champion. Hart's won. Schumacher's got all the championships. We know Brock can win some races. Obviously, Brittany's a multi time champ, and Antron's a multi time champ. So, you know, Phil, when we look at five to twelve, what's the car that we should be thinking most of coming into twenty four? Yeah, I, I, I got to think Antron. I mean, I think this is a guy that's consistently there. <laughs> Um, proven team, proven uh, proven driver. Um, I think that he, he looks back this year and he thinks this is the one that maybe he could have done a little better. But to your point, I mean, every year we talk to these drivers and they're like, oh, it's tougher than it's ever been. And, and they keep saying that year after year. But when you look at, like I said, this, the top 12 drivers, like you mentioned, it is really thick out there. It's not the years of having, you know, one guy dominate. I think yeah. those days are gone just as they are in funny car. 
And listen, we're adding full-time cars next year too. There's more. There's yeah. more people jumping in the damn pool. But you know, Tony, same thing for you. Is it is it Brittany? Is it Schumacher? I mean, is it Milliken? Is it Langdon? Who do we need to look at and say this is the person we should put the most spotlight on that didn't necessarily perform the way we thought they would in 23? The one car that really stands out, if they can continue to do what they did at the finals, and we saw a flash of them do it last year, but they didn't. Of course, they had some personnel changes. Ron Tolbert left. But what they did in Pomona, if they can somehow manage to to find, to find that kind of performance and then develop some level of consistency along with it, Austin Proc, that team right there, I think, can be – the biggest threat if they can go there's a lot of ifs yeah but if you look at the list there's some cars that are consistent there's some cars that are consistently slow and uh, mike salinas has without a question one of the best cars but you know unless he reconnects with jose gonzalez he's giving up three four five hundredths of a second on the starting line you know all yeah. that hyperbole that, that we heard from mike it sounded good at the time but when you're when you can only have good reaction times for half of the season, and I've, I've mentioned this to you before, uh, Brian. You've heard this before, Phil. Staying power, you have to be able to do it from the beginning to the end, especially to the end. So you can't just be good, you know, for six months and think I, I can I can <laughs> hang out with the with the elites. It doesn't work that way. So I think Austin Proc has some potential. He's got talent. He's got natural talent. He has a good feel for the car when the car gets in trouble. He can leave. I think if if he can make a few adjustments, you know, on his in his personal life and just and maybe, you know, get get a little more serious about the driving part. Um, and, and what I'm talking about is how the driver performs. You have to ask yourself, what are these drivers going to do in the off season? We all know what the tuners are going to do. There's going to be some shifting, some personnel yep. changes, and most of it is going to be in the effort to to get the car to perform better. So, what are the drivers going to do? Are they going to party? Are they going to drink it up? Are they going to Are they going to do their homework? Are they going to do something to improve their health, to prove their ability? Um, you know, and that's something I, I I just I like to see from some of the drivers. I know that some of them are going to do it, yep. but I have a feeling that some of these drivers are not going to try to hone their skills when it comes to doing an interview. And we're probably going to come out and see the same pattern, the same drivers doing the same things, except for the ones that do their homework. And and I just I see a lot of potential in that team because of what they did at the finals. Yeah, look, and Phil, they they have an uncanny ability to run well at Pomona. I mean, we we ran a graphic on the oh, yeah. shows like the last four times he he's been there, he's been in the finals to a degree. I mean, it's pretty pretty wild how good they are at that racetrack. Yeah, but see, there's a lot of other racetracks on the tour. you got to be good at better than just Pomona. Yeah. And uh, actually, yeah, Tony, I have a question for you on that. You, you talk about driver fitness, and it seems, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, that wasn't really a thing. The guys were drinking beer and doing other things and, and goofing around a lot. Um, <laughs> when, when do you think that trend changed where now you got guys in the gym, you guys got working on reaction times and reaction time games, things like that? When did that shift start to happen? You know, I've thought about it, Phil. That's a very good question. You know, I, I like to think, and this isn't because, you know, I happen to be one of those drivers, but if you really go back, you know, we're familiar with this, the 70s, you know, the 70s era, late 70s, 80s. You know, Kenny Bernstein was, in my opinion, a serious racer. He showed up for one reason, and that was to deliver um, return to the sponsors on their investment 
and and not to socialize, no no partying, no beer drinking. That's why I, I think very highly of Kenny Bernstein because, you know, I, I've mentioned this before. There's acquired talent. There's natural talent. It doesn't matter which you have as long as you have it. And I think that, you know, there's always going to be a, a Bernstein there were guys that took it seriously, but you know, I, I wonder sometimes in the nine to late nineties uh, when I came along, you know, Cruz had already won a championship, but you know, he was considered one of the younger drivers. Uh, you know, Pat Austin found himself in a top fuel car in the early to mid nineties, and you know, of course, myself and Caps, and and you know, there was Scusa. There was a handful of younger drivers that landed those positions because of a timing, and you can call it luck. Um, but you know, we were younger and I, I I say that because I don't drink. I never really partied. Um, you know, and Hey, everybody's entitled to enjoy themselves before and after, but the during, I always took it very seriously. So when I, when I see some drivers that are, you know, if I see drinking, if I see, you know, excessive this or that, I got to call that out because that to me tells me it's no different than an athlete. How serious are they about their performance on the field or on the track if they're doing these other things that are going to be a detriment to sponsors and to your job and to your team. So, um, you know, I, I just, I think that, um, I think that maybe in the late nineties, early two thousands, I mean, you look at some other drivers, I think J.R. Todd is one of those drivers. Um, I know he has spent quite a bit of time. I don't know if he still goes to pit fit, but, you know, this is a facility where IndyCar drivers go, and there's a lot of cognitive uh, drills that they do, hand-eye coordination. There's a physical aspect of it. And when you do those things, when you put the time in, 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 in that regard, then mentally, you're pretty strong. I mean, look at Matt Hagen. Okay, now there's a prime example. Look at Bob Tasca. I mean, this guy, if I told him to drop down and do 50 push-ups, he might be able to do 25 on one hand. <laughs> So if you look at the better performing and Robert, you know, Robert's evolved into a pretty good driver and, and his championships and his record speaks for itself. Yes. But, but if you, if you single out Hagen and Tasca, and then you go down the list, you look at all the other drivers, those two stand out above the rest. Now, Chad green, uh, at least last time I saw, he had the quickest reacting car. Well, we all know that, that it's, it's, it's a little on the inside, but but he's quick and he delivers and and he gets the job done. But he also rolls the car in. And I I don't mention this on the show because I don't want to overcomplicate things for our viewer. But if you look at the best drivers right now, I think it, it's no coincidence that they are also the the uh, most physically fit. And and I think there's a mental aspect of it that comes along with it. You know, Phil, it's interesting, and it's a great point, and it's a great question, and, and I actually had this discussion with a buddy of mine in a different context when we were t he brought up Babe Ruth, and he said, look, Babe Ruth used to wake up and, and you know, he'd eat three steaks for breakfast and, and five hot dogs for lunch and chug five beers before the game, and, and he still managed to do all this, and I said, but everybody else was doing that too. And so to me, it's like if, if we look back at, you know, what the, you know, quote unquote, you know, health regimen was in the 70s, maybe a little bit better, you know, better living through chemistry. Um, if everybody's doing the same thing, then you kind of find a plane. But, yeah, I, I like Tony's answer there about Kenny Bernstein kind of breaking out of the mold to a degree and, and making, you know, making the fitness element, making that mental, physical connection, you know, kind of a bigger deal. And, yeah, I, I 
I, I find it a very tough thing to argue against. I mean, if you're going to roll up into the racetrack with a with a head that feels like someone's banging on it with a set of hammers, I have a tough time believing you're going to compete with a guy like Justin Ashley who has gotten uh, a night's sleep and has probably had some sort of a you know wheatgrass shake in the morning or whatever before he got in the car, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you remember, you remember seeing you know, on, on the way the we'd be on the way to the racetrack seven o'clock eight o'clock in the morning and there was Kenny Bernstein doing his race walking along the highway. The guy was up there religiously before people were in the gyms. He was out there, you know, walking, you know, five, ten miles a morning. And it showed. It showed, Phil. I, we were in India in the late 90s when I was driving for Force. We were testing. It was the week before the U.S. Nationals. And there was a Dairy Queen. There still is a Dairy Queen down the street. You know, and I I'm, I'm, was a lot younger than I am now. And I thought, I'm going to get a banana split in between runs. <laughs> And I was driving out of the facility, and I didn't know it was Kenny at first. I just saw this sweat pouring off of this guy, and it looked like uh, it looked like Sylvester Stallone. He had like a Ninja Turtle body, and this is no this is no story. I I stopped. I thought that's Kenny Bernstein. I made a U-turn and went back into the track. So, you know, I think for Kenny, it showed yeah. on the track. If you go back in his history, this guy was good. And he evolved into one of the greatest drivers of all time. So, you know, when you look at everything and you pay attention to all the detail, because the tuners do, you know, they're splitting hairs. They're they're talking about, well, do we put in seven pounds or seven and a quarter pounds? So they are doing all of the things to give themselves an edge. And we see all these close races. We 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 highlight it on every show. It's a sponsored item. We show all the closest races. And can you imagine if you can if you can take two or three of those losses, those close races, yeah. and if you can switch roles by by deciding the outcome of that as a driver, they should be doing their homework. And look, right. I maybe you guys agree or disagree, but I'd have to pound for pound, uh, not even as a joke, but pound for pound, we have to say that the pro stock motorcycle racers are the fittest group of competitors we have, right? They don't have a choice. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah, they got to. I mean, I think I was talking to Steve Johnson. He said, if you're anywhere near 170, you're in trouble. So, you know, that's why these guys are on these bro- broccoli diets or, or, you know, very, very tight regimen of food. <laughs> the uh, funny car drivers are on barley diets. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, and, I, again, I'm not knocking all of them, but I, I can see it. I, I've seen it for years. I've always known it. And, you know, Hagen and Tasca and the drivers that were on top, they're going to continue to be on top unless unless somebody turns the ship around and, and – invest some time over the off season to make improvements. And I'm, I'm not just talking the physical part of it, but I think the physical part of it is, is an important aspect of it. And I realize that some of these, you know, a lot of these drivers, they, they own different businesses, but you know, guys, it's like, we want to be big time. We really do. In fact, sometimes we actually act like it. And sometimes we get a rating on our TV show as if we are big time racing. So I just think that, I think that they should, um, they should walk the walk as well. As we've moved into funny car here, let's talk, uh, you know, let's talk about the Matt Hagen triumph. Um, you know, it was one of those things that uh, was very compelling piece of video that was posted on TSR social um, shot by a fan. I think in the hospitality area, the whole team was basically huddled up and, and awaiting the results of the Chad green Robert height matchup. It went their way and they reacted in kind. And, you know, of all these funny car championship runs you've seen, Phil, how does this one stack up for you as far as uh, dr- drama till the end? 
Yeah, but, I mean, what happened there in that second round, I don't, I don't think anybody would have bet on that. I think we all thought yeah. they were moving on and it would be a long day, like, like it was the year before in Top Fuel. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we had that long wait there was a well down, and, and all Robert's got to do is beat Chad Green. I think that most of us had that, that win already in, in his column. And, uh, you know, when that, that thing came loose, it was like, oh, my gosh. And, and you had, had Matt Hagen on, on your show, on the Fox show. You might, Matt Hagen isolated, kind of like very, very similar to Doug Coletta in 2006. Yeah. And you're, are you are is he going to smile or is he going to be crestfallen? And you know just uh, and to see Robert do that, you know that that never not never, but very seldom happens to that team late in late eliminations for sure. It really was, and and Tony for me the it was like that moment summed up Chad Green's whole season, right? That 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 one run next to Height was like a microcosm of his whole season, which is like damn. Didn't expect, didn't see that coming. <laughs> well, that's what consistency will do for you, and. I wish we could have had that meme. I've sent it to you a few times, Brian, that, that, that gal singing surprise, surprise. <laughs> I just, it was just, you know, it was amazing that that one, two, three, you know, and Todd Venny reminded, I think he reminded you that something yeah. similar happened. I think it was in 06 or 07, but it happens. And I think, I think for the most part, you know, if you go back a year ago and I, and I think, uh, you know, Cruz and I talked about this, I think that that race and that, that what happened a year before, 365 days before, I think it had a, an effect on how some of these tuners approached that track, that race. Now, it was 10 degrees warmer, so it wasn't really the same track. And I, I it wasn't going to hold mid-80s. It wasn't even going to hold an 86 or 87. Robert got away with it in the first round. Um, you know, arguably, they were the best conditions with the exception of the evening run. Uh, but, you know, we saw a 390 and a 391. Those were probably a little bit quicker. But if we saw, if Hagen or if Tasca or if Robert Height, if any of those quick cars were in that final, we would have seen an 84, an 85, or an 86. But, you know, the fact that it was the second round, that's one of the most challenging rounds that we see on, on Sunday. And, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that they just, they were all too aggressive. They were all trying to run a little too hard. And, you know, I'm sure with the exception of, of, of Venables, they're all look, going back and saying, oh, if we could have just, you know, made that one run without getting the tires loose. But I, I think the look on Hagen's face, I'm pretty sure if you had a camera on everyone's face, it was the same. <laughs> it was one heck of a surprise. It really was. Yeah. Go for it, yeah. Phil. I mean, who, who saw that? I mean, really, you know, these yeah. three guys have been good all year. We're all relatively good in the countdown. And then, you know, same round from all to go out and, and even Hagen said it, it's, it's tough to win a championship by somebody else losing. But, you know, everything he did before that, the six wins he had, you know, set them up for that. But, uh, you know, it was one of the more surprising moments to have all that happen. And especially, like I said, you know, Rob, you know Robert's car is going to get down the track most of the time. And, and you know, Chad Green has been really, really good this year, a breakout year for him. But I think everybody thought that, you know, Jimmy Crawford put the screws to it and, you know, it would be game over. You know, I, I like the fact to me that like all three of the finalists or all three of the guys that came into that thing with a shot had such they have such different stories and you know it, it was it set up well for us in terms of you know two guys trying to get a fourth title one guy trying to get a first all three of them you know established commodities you had the whole thing with Tasca's group uh, being re- refreshed for this year um, I, I w- I'm Tony I would be shocked otherwise but is it fair to assume that they've been able to keep the band together over there at Tasca's team? Seems like it. Um, you know, I think everyone's just off, you know, taking the vacation yeah. time. There's no question. We all know that Tasca is, is, we thought he was good this year. 
They're going to be better. They're going to be more consistent. They're going to be more dangerous. Um, but, you know, so so will Hagen. One thing you can really appreciate about Hagen is, you know, is um, his spirit, the competitive spirit that the guy has. You know, he was very open. And, and I get it. I mean, I, I have an appreciation for it because I think that some drivers are like that. They want to determine the outcome themselves. They don't want to sit there and watch some monitor and and uh, it's not that they don't like the element of surprise. I mean, he's the one that walked away with the trophy. But you know, it, it in a in a perfect world, um, you know, they would have liked to have gone down a different way. Not you know, not spinning the tires like they did. And um, you know, I I think it, one of the teams that are interesting is the fact that you know that Caps wasn't there in the end. And, and, it, and it makes you wonder. It just makes you wonder that, and, and Brian, you've been around me long enough, that a lot of times we don't see, we don't see instant results. We don't see the right. effect right away. But you can sure as heck detect it after a half a year. It, one would yeah. wonder, as, as talented as Antonelli is, as good as that team yeah. is, has been in the past, you got to wonder if Medlin's absence didn't rear its head down the stretch. And and to be determined, I, I'm sure I mean, this is no insult to anyone on that team, but no. it, it just makes you it makes you wonder if if you know why weren't they there? Are they going to be one of the teams to be reckoned with? Sure, of yeah. course they are, but but you know when, when it comes time to go the distance and and be versatile in good conditions and cool, like Phil said earlier, you have to be good in the heat, in the cool, and everything in between. And, and it's just one of those things that I'm just wondering and all the thoughts that we have uh, about what we're going to be talking about and what we can expect next year. You know, Phil, uh, not that it's a big surprise because you, you've known the guy for decades. He's been such a big major face of our sport for decades. But, you know, Caps handled what was a pretty rough countdown very graciously with a lot of dignity. I mean, because we would, you know, we would go right at him. First round loss, we'd be right there with a the camera and a microphone and um, – you know, I always I always give people credit that that stand in there and, and give us, you know, real answers to those questions because you don't have to. You can just shake your head and, and say we're going to the next race. He never did that. Right. Yeah. 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 Caps is the ultimate yeah, ultimate spokesman, spokesperson as far as that goes. Yeah. He, he knows what, what what we need. He knows what we want. If we interview him after a tough race like you guys do, he's not going to go hide in Australia. He's going to come out and give us an honest answer. And you know, and when he wins, it, it's a high, high, and when he when he loses, it's a low, low, and it's not none of this. We'll get him next time. It, it's yeah. a heartfelt thing. I think that really resonates with people because he's real. I mean, you know, we all all know Ron. Ron's a real guy. We've seen him from you know from come from nothing, get the break with the snake, get the break with Schumacher, and and just you know now his own team. It, it's been a success story, and I think we all have ridden along with that. And I think we like what we see from Ron when he does that. Is there a fifth entrant into the Battle Royale next year? We don't think Caps is going anywhere. We certainly know Hagen and Height aren't going anywhere, and I would assume Task is not going anywhere. So is there a – Phil, I'm throwing this to you first. Is there a fifth entrant into the ring for Funny Car next year? I think it's about time for a JR top rebound. I mean, that, that team is really good. Obviously, they've won the championship before. Um, you know, you look at the, the guys that finished in front of him, you know, obviously, Force, the GOAT, Wilk had a real great year. Chad Green to be determined whether they can continue what they did this year, what Daniel Wilkerson has banked from this. But I, I really looking for a, for a strong push from Jared Todd and the Coletta team. How about you, Tony? I wonder the same thing I wondered a year ago about about uh, the DHL team. 
uh, you know, they, when they seem to find it, they're good. And, and we all think, all right now, and, and they've done, they've done it both ways. You know, they can run good when the conditions are right, but they can also run good, you know, on a, on a warm track. Um, they just, for some reason, they just can't manage to, you know, the, the consistency from race yeah. to race. Um, you know, force can be good, but I think there's, you know, there's some give and take as good as the car is. It's not consistent. I think if they can ever learn how to race, um, because that car has flashed, uh, Oh yeah. Know, some some big numbers runs yeah. at times, but if you go back, you know, to, to hood, and this is something that, you know, I'm sure they're going to look at in the off season, uh, same pattern with, with Courtney force, you know, the car ran good, uh, at times and, and, you know, and then Cruz, it's hard to say. I, I just, you know, the question is, is who's going to step forward? It seemed to be force in that fifth spot for a while. And, you know, there at the end, points and a half, um, you know, it kind of faded. So in yeah. uh, funny car, I just, I don't see anyone like, I don't see the volume of cars uh, that we do. You know, when you look yeah. at, hey, Wilkerson, he's good for a win or two, maybe three. Um, but you know, there's there's just some weaknesses in some of the other programs, and I, I think you know that's what we're going to be watching to see who's going to step who's going to step forward and fill that fifth spot and make it make it a five way race. Phil, yeah. who go for it? You got to wonder too about you know Derek Hoff. He's kind of got derailed pretty early with the the, the, the collision with Forrest, D and Q in Vegas that followed that. It makes you wonder, you know, how much that took away from the steam from their season. Oh yeah, I think it, I mean at minimum it put them two months behind in a lot of different things. I mean they they went from having something pretty good going on early to then having to start from scratch. And you know I think it's a difficult thing for people to conceptualize at home that well you know well they got an an, an identical chassis delivered to them. Why isn't it just the same? Well it isn't. It isn't the same. We know how temperamental these engines are with a fresh fuel pump and all fresh controls for the clutches. It just is not the same. So then you're two months behind trying to get your stuff together. Sonoma for them was great. I was glad to see it happen, but yeah, we uh, I think we're all three on the same page there for him next season. Phil, who will have the tougher defense next year? Will Erica Enders or Gage Herrera have the tougher title defense in 2024? Oh boy, you know, the way Gage has been riding, and you know, we're all still waiting to see what happens with uh, Team Banson Hines for next year. There's um, been a lot of rumors, a lot of speculation around yeah. their team. I, I got to believe it, it's Erica's got to be a little tougher. I mean, Greg was, you know, Greg was right there at the end, not within you know, really, you know, around a race is win, but he was right there all season. You know, you know, Dallas Glenn had a great regular season, fell off in the playoffs. Uh, I think Erica will be the tougher, tougher, uh, tougher defense for sure. What do you think, Tom? Well, I think Matt Smith, I'm a Matt Smith fan. I am a believer of Matt Smith. <laughs> and I think that he's, he's going to be, he's going to be another, he's going to be a threat once again, on the machine that he's had so much so much success on, I I, you know, I don't know if they're going to be able to outrun uh, Gage, but I think I think he's going to put some pressure on him, and you know I think it's going to be interesting to see what Chase Van Sant can do. Um, you know, you just go back a couple of years, you know that it's still Tim Colungian, he has talent. It's Jerry Savoy's operation, and you know they've challenged before. Yeah. And, yeah. I, you know, I think Chase is just, he's a young talent, uh, you know, great to see a new rookie of the year. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I think the competition is going to be a lot tighter. I don't think that the Vance and Heinz, Heinz, Heinz team is going to have their way with the field. Um, but I, I, I still think they're going to dominate, but not in the way that they did this year. 
Yeah, I mean, statistically, it would seem almost impossible to have that happen twice. And obviously, Matt being back on a motorcycle that is far more competitive now, you know, in your in your estimation, Phil, the, the fact that Angie was on a Buell all season long and the fact they brought out that Buell in the countdown, does that keep Matt on a information-gathering plane that he needs to be on so he has not fallen behind? Meaning that, you know, if those Buells didn't hit the racetrack at all this year, he would be effectively a year behind in development. Did did Angie's bike and then the blocker bike help him keep keep pace? Yeah, I, I think so. I think you saw what happened. You know, you know, Angie had done a good job on the bike, but then Chip got on that bike in the playoffs, and we saw what it was really capable of. Yeah. And, of course, you know, the end of that story, we, we will never know because of what happened to Angie in St. Louis. But uh, or does does Matt does uh, Matt go in all all in on Suzuki? You know, is the is the the Buell pass its prime? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he he did tell us point blank on the TV show that he was off the Suzuki as of Pomona. He did tell us that they would be on that they would be on Buells, and I believe even Gianna Evaristo is going to be on a Buell as well. From uh, Tony, can you confirm that? I can't remember. I believe he said that Gianna was going to be on a Buell as well. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I'm not going to disagree with yeah. you, but yeah. I, I do know that he did tell us that uh, Buell is the is the uh, weapon of choice for him. Yeah, and and you know, to me, as far as Erica goes, my understanding is, you know, there's supposedly another car coming in with KB Titan and Sierra Wildgust, who's a young Canadian female racer that is, um, you know, purporting that she's going to run Pro Stock full time next year. What else are you hearing as far as any new faces or names, Phil, as far as Pro Stock goes? Well, I heard the same story you did about the KB Titan team coming out with that. But other than that, it seems kind of status quo out there. I mean, you know, uh, Elite obviously is all, all, always ready to expand. And they had Jerry Tucker come in this year, do yeah. a decent job for him. Um, you know, and then they got Bo over on their team. I, I'm not sure that, that there's any a lot of new people coming into Pro Stock. Um, but then, you know, it, it's already a, a tough battle as it is, you know, especially among the Elite and the KB battle. Um, I, I think that that's a, a pretty good, you know, top eight right there. You know, we saw Dallas Phil fade in the countdown really for the second time. Um, last year was maybe a little bit more self-inflicted when he had the DNQ late when they were trying to, you know, they were trying to stop Erica as as they seem to be trying to do most every year. Um, but it, it's interesting to me because in a pro stock car versus a nitro car, you know, you can run out of clutch discs discs in a nitro car. You can run into some mechanical issues that could be tough to overcome. But in a pro stock car. Nothing really changes other than the weather, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, it's your ability to adapt. And you know, and, and you look at. I mean, Dallas didn't do bad in the playoffs. No. You know, he had he had a great regular season. You know, I think he led the points from Pomona through a vast majority of the thing and until the countdown. Then you know, got off to a bad start there. Uh, but I think he went to what the two finals in the countdown. Yeah. Didn't win either of them. But but you know, so he was right there. Uh, I don't you know. Is it, is it a? I mean, obviously, all, all the KB cars are all tuned the same by the same group of guys. Um, and Dallas's talent behind the wheel is unquestionable. I, I don't really know what went wrong for them. Tony, anything stick out for you regarding Dallas? No, I just you know what I wonder about Pro Stock is at what point are we going to see Aaron Stanfield be consistently quick, as consistent as Erica? Um, at what point are we going to see Bo? I, you can't tell me no. that. I, I realize Erica has talent, and she, and nine, eight times out of ten, she's still going to be better. So when you compete with, when you want to compete with Erica, you're going to have to compete on on two levels. You need the car, and then you have to. If you have the car, and sometimes some of these drivers do, now you got to figure out. Well, how do I compete with her on the racetrack? Okay, good luck. 
But it makes you wonder, when you look at Bo Butner and Troy Coughlin Jr. and Aaron Stanfield, I don't care. I know I asked Erica to some degree on the stage, and she instantly got defensive. Okay, that's that's a red flag right there. That right there will tell you a story. But I just wonder at what point those – if I'm paying, if I'm a sponsor, I'm asking questions. I want to know where is my car, where is my consistency, where is my performance. So um, it, it just makes you wonder. There's so many cars in that camp. Um, and, and, you know, of course, we talked about this, Brian. We'll have to – we'll worry about this later in the year. But I, I just completely disagree and frown. It's like, look, pro stock all you teams you're you know the challenge is 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 popularity okay the top fuel cars the the nitro uh, funny cars they steal the show and you're throwing races and you really don't need to so you know you kind of you're tarring yourself or if the shoe fits those who are listening to this know who i'm talking about but that happens later in the year. I just I'm wondering at what point we're going to see more parity within that elite team. And for the KB drivers, you know, they've got to minimize the hole shots. Yeah. They got to minimize yeah. the red lights, but mostly the hole shots. And you look at the quadras, as much talent that that there is there, got to reduce the whole, the red lights, guys. I mean, so there's there's some work to do to get better in the seat. And that's just in the seat. And no tuners are going to worry about the cars. But I, here again, I think the drivers have all, some work to do. Yeah, look, and, and if we continue, which I believe we will, continue to see 20 to 23 cars show up per race, Phil, um, we're, we're kind of getting back a little bit to the era of, wait, that, that guy's a good car and didn't make the field. I mean, there are still guys that are coming out here, God bless them, the privateer guys that are just a couple of hundreds behind that are a real long shot to even qualify. But, you know, the more we see these 22, 23 car fields, the more we are going to see actual good cars not make the cut on the occasional Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we talked to Greg Anderson in Dallas, and he was kind of walked us through just the intricacies of driving a pro stock car, how precise the drivers have to be, you know, with the rev limiter, how they have to change the gearing based on the track conditions or the weather, and how that affects the driver's, you know, uh, muscle memory on when to shift or how to feel in the seat of their pants. And it's a, it's a tricky thing. So the, the people that do this well and do it well consistently, like a Greg Anderson, like an Eric Anders, you know, but, you know, you miss a shift by, you know, 25 RPM, that might be the difference between qualifying and not qualifying. Yeah, that's insane. Uh, two last topics. First one, Phil, put uh, put Gage's season on your own personal record of cool stuff, uh, personal accomplishment, however you want to say it. Where would you chip it into your tablet of all-time NHRA seasons that you've witnessed? Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever I, you know, the gold standard for me has always been Perdome, 1976, win seven out of eight races, so pure percentage basis. Then you got to remember Don Bernome had been driving professionally for a lot of years by that time. Gage comes in, he's you know he'd ridden a lot of no bar bikes. He's actually been quicker on his his other bikes than he's ever on his on the pro stock motorcycle. But really, championship pressure, sponsor commitments, media media obligations. You know he kind of came in this thing raw and to come out and do this and be relatively flawless. It, it, it's certainly in my top three. How about you, Tony? As a guy who's won championships, you've uh, been a young guy, you've been a rookie, and, and we know that he wasn't a pure rookie, but to Phil's point, he never had to deal with all the media he had to do this year, the sponsor obligations. He was a rookie to all that stuff. So where do you place that in your own personal record? I think it's going to be interesting to see what the chosen one is going to grow into. 
Well, uh, right, new what's, 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 new <laughs> I like it. He, there it is. Yeah. It's, it's no snake or mongoose, but it is the chosen one. <laughs> you know, it's like he took on so much. He had yeah. you know all those pressures, and we saw Gage Herrera. I think we saw Gage Herrera that was a little reserved, um, that was at times a little overwhelmed. He seemed to enjoy it. He seemed to be taking it all in. He delivered in the clutch through those pressures, but now he's got some time to decompress, to think about things. And, you know, he's only going to get better on the machine. But I think that Gage Herrera has the opportunity to be an even brighter star. I think he can, you know, when you when you think about a young talent, and this is, this is I kind of alluded to this with Chase Van Zandt, when you see a young talent that has charisma, that has a good personality, that is hum- humble to some degree, and that wins races. People like that. Yeah. But people also want to be entertained. Uh, they they want to see that personality. And, you know, I just think that um, there's there, the sky's the limit for a rider like Chase Van Zandt. I think he's going to continue to perform. I don't even think we've seen the best of him. Uh, we, let's see how he can shine on the starting line when he – when he has a threat in the other lane, I, th- I think he's going to rise to the occasion. But you know, I don't. I don't think there's any limit to what what we're what we can see from Chase. I mean, rather from Gage. Phil, as far as being in the media business here, is there a better potential story than kind of reserved Gage versus a pithy, motivated chip on his shoulder Matt Smith? I mean, to me, it's the perfect it's the perfect marriage of greatness as far as telling a story. Yeah, it was you know, got this, this, you know, relatively raw talent coming out, and you know, in a way, revolutionized the way that the riders ride these bikes with the way he moves his his body on the starting line that people began to emulate late in the season against against a Matt Smith who's been there and done that and won a lot of championships. Uh, I think that you know, I, I made the comment in the, the media center promoter that Gage just spent more time on the media seat than he actually had on the <laughs> on the seat of his bike. And you saw the confidence grow, and yeah. it was in—I think it was in Charlotte, Fall Charlotte—where you know Matt Smith started bringing in all the blockers. He had Julie Gladstone, he had Chip Ellis, and we asked Gage about that. He said, "Bring it on!" I loved that part of it. Rather than a guy that's kind of shrinking from that, he's like, "Bring on all the game! I'm ready for any game he brings to the starting line. I'm ready for any blockers he wants to bring in. It just makes it more fun for me." And that tells you a lot about the guy's uh, level of compete. Last topic, boys, before I let you go, we need to we need to start talking a little silly season gossip here. Need to start talking about what the streets are telling us, Tony. Whatever you're hearing in downtown, the the bustling metropolis of downtown Avon and or Brownsburg, Phil, what's emanating? <laughs> what's what's bouncing off the walls of the dragster office? Uh, I'll let you go first, Tony. What's what's? Give me something, even if it's generalized. Give me something you're hearing out there. Well, more than a turkey, more than a turkey and <laughs> stuffing bouncing around. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, you know, to be honest with you, you know, I don't think anything has really shaken out yet. Um, and I think, I think a lot of teams haven't, or rather, I shouldn't say a lot. The few that I know of haven't really made, haven't done any shuffling till, you know, till after Thanksgiving. You know, I think from a team owner's perspective, uh, you know, they're going to pay their employees, uh, and there's always a lot of rollover with with crew members. Yeah. You know, they're always looking for a better opportunity, maybe a, a position that's going to pay a few more bucks. And there are some teams that want to make improvements in efficiency with a crew member. 
So we can always expect that kind of shuffling, but I think I, I have a feeling of what you're talking about, and that is maybe some of the crew chiefs, you know, uh, switching teams or or uh, being shown the door. And I think one of the teams that we fully expect it from um, is the Snap-on team. Why not? Why wouldn't you make a change there? Uh, what those changes are to be determined, you know. And one of the other teams that I I think about, and and I think the expectations are so much more. And and look. I, I know I know the individuals that are there personally. Kurt Elliott worked for me for a lot of years on Sean, that's on Sean Langdon's car. But it, you you really begin to wonder what is that team going to do to be more competitive? Their teammate just won the championship. They have a car with yeah. with this wealth of information and knowledge, and and I realize it's not easy to duplicate it, but. I mean, come on, guys. We, you got to get closer than than that. So I think the expectations for that team are a lot more. Should be a lot more. It just makes you wonder: is there any shuffling going to be going around with with some other teams uh, as well? How about you, Phil? Uh, yeah, I, I got to agree on that. You know, Sean Lang and you know, twelfth place is not where he normally is or where he belongs. That car just struggled all year long. I don't know what. The, I don't think they were ever maybe made the top ten early in the year. But you you know what kind of driver Sean is. You know. That you know, Clitus has cycled in and out some crew chiefs. Obviously, they brought in uh, you know Alan yeah. Johnson and Brian Houston, uh, Brian and um, Houston, uh, you know, two years ago. Yeah, and it took, it took two years for that to happen. I mean, you know, even Doug mentioned in our call earlier, he, he didn't want to be one of the few guys that had not won under under Alan Johnson's tuning. So you, you got you got to wonder how long, you know, or, or you know what's Connie's involvement. So is Connie still calling some shots there? Is, is he, you know, because of his, his personal car that that he wants to have a handle in it? Or do they, they start looking for other talent? And we know that, you know, if anybody can afford to lure somebody away, you know, <laughs> right. kind of goes <laughs> to the top of their list. So, yeah, you just wonder that. And, you know, what's, what's uh, you know, that's just not part par for the Toledo team. Like I so said, obviously you have a champion in, in one top fuel car in 12th place and the other one, that's, you know, that that's just not emblematic of their team. Yeah, and, you know, as far as stuff that I've heard, um, you know, so, you know, Travis Shoemake's a guy that uh, has his top fuel license, had had really designs on trying to get out to a couple of the late season races, uh, did not pan out that way, but he is licensed, has the truck and trailer now, he bought Jim Maroney's stuff, um, yeah. is working on, on sponsorship. Now, my understanding is he has enough for a partial season, uh, but is not necessarily close to running full time yet. Uh, that that car would be coming out of the kind of out of the scrapper's garage, and he's been pretty forward on his social media talking about that. Uh, Julie Natas, I know that she has signed on for another season with Randy Meyer. That was something she said she was in her last season, but she is going to go back to A Fuel. I think she's continuing to seek sponsorship to run Top Fuel Car. Hunter Green signed on for another year with Randy Meyer, so um, he had multiple wins this year, including the one with his father in Pomona. Uh, there is a new top fuel team, full time team that is confirmed coming out of uh, out of the Greater Brownsburg area, and I have to imagine, um, Tony. I know that hasn't been a lot yet, but I have to imagine once the toolboxes start rolling, they're going to get crew guys from somewhere, um, and we know how that goes. There's usually some animosity when the guys are rolling the box across the street, and you know they told the boss 24 hours later that they were quitting. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's. Uh... You know, it's like the mafia, the, the cliche they use. Hey, it's it's uh, it's nothing personal. It's just business, <laughs> right? And, hey, Brian, I know we're going over, and, and maybe this is this is a conversation for the next podcast, but um, I think I think it should be podcast-worthy to have um, – to talk about the awards banquet. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and where <laughs> – hey, 
I'm going to start a. Uh, I'm going to start a pledge here. Bring back the Nomex effect, just one time. <laughs> one time, Jr. Yeah, I'm talking about you and Sean. I'm talking about you, baby. Let's hear that Nomex effect now. That'll get some ratings, but uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll have that conversation next time. I think we will. I think there there might actually be a legal statute that we have to clear before we move ahead on that one. But yeah, <laughs> listen, the banquet the banquet is always uh, sometimes a little bit more full contact than people expected it to become, and that is apparently the case between a couple of guys in the hallway. Uh, I think when Hagen was making his speech, so that's great. And finally, the last piece of the last piece of rumor information I'll I'll put out there is. Um, a European racer was flown directly to Pomona uh, kind of last minute and will be making a significant announcement at PRI. And again, we're talking about top fuel. So, um, you know, for some reason we are overloading ourselves and I'm not complaining. I I want some more funny cars, but man, we are, we're going to have apparently a glut of top fuel cars, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I don't know if you heard that Jacob McNeil is planning a full season next year too. No way. Yep, yep. And he's obviously well funded for that. I talked to him at Dallas. Wow. And that's his plan. And uh, you know, he's he's you know fairly wealthy guy, and he's got enough money to do it, whether he gets a sponsor or not. So and I don't know if it, who's it going to be with. Again, you know, who who, who can you rob? I, mean, I don't know if it's going to be with Scott Palmer. I know Scott doesn't want to run the whole season again. Um, but you know, the guys, you know, you know, deep, deep enough in pockets. Wow. Can he lure away from these talents to somebody that wants to be part of a of a rising team? I don't know. That's a big one because Tony, I did, I had not heard that one. So that we basically now, if any, if if this stuff comes to fruition, like we're saying it, we will have sixteen full time top fuel cars next year. Jasmine Salinas, we haven't brought her name up, but she's obviously planning a full time campaign. Uh, we had twelve this year, so if you had Jasmine, that's thirteen. Yeah, McNeil, that's fourteen. Um, we add the mystery team coming from Brownsburg, that's fifteen. And to my understanding, there's at least one more coming that's going to announce a full season. So now we're talking, that is epic. That would be something. Is is the mystery team out of Brownsburg, not the team out of the Northwest? We're talking about something different. Uh, the guy is from the Northwest, but the team will be based in Indiana. Okay, all right. So yeah, are we not saying a great name for a reason? Well, I you know out of respect, I guess it, it's been floating <laughs> out there, but he you know he's looking to make the announcement at PRI, so I I don't want right. to I don't want to fully uh, send him you know send him under the spotlight yet, even though we might have already. But uh, people can make their own. That's what's fun about this season. People can make their own conclusions for a couple of weeks. All right. Well, Phil and Tony, thank you very much. As always, a great romp through the sport. I wish you guys uh, a happy Thanksgiving, and I am sure we'll be chatting much more over the course of the winter. All right, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Same here, Brian. Happy uh, Thanksgiving, everyone. All right. See you guys. Thank you. We'll be back with my final thoughts on this episode of the NHRA Insider right after this. And back here with some final thoughts on this episode of the NHRA Insider. Certainly a very entertaining episode. Phil Burgess always bringing great insight from his four decades of experience operating National Dragster Magazine and being on the inside of this sport. I think the one thing you can take away from this conversation is that we had a very unique season in 2023, including the way the championships were won, who won them, and how they were won. It was spectacular to have things wrap up the way they did in Pomona, California. I think that last segment hopefully piqued your interest a little bit because there is a lot going on behind the scenes. It is a bubbling kind of cauldron of cool stuff that's going to be announced really in fits and bursts coming out over the next few weeks. The PRI show in Indianapolis, which is coming up in the second week of December, will be a week full of big announcements regarding NHRA drag racing from both the series and from competitors 
both new and existent. A lot of stuff going on. I had no idea about Jacob McNeil committing to a full season next year. I think that's pretty spectacular. That's a guy who um, has showed us a lot in the short number of races we have seen him at. We know that he can handle a race car. We know that he's an intense competitor. And we know, apparently, that he has the wallet to be able to do it as well. So it is going to be awesome. These next few weeks are always very exciting. I hope that you enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday with your family. We'll be back again next week with the Insider as we fully move into off-season mode, talk about some of the things that are going on, maybe reveal a little bit more of some of that stuff going on behind the curtain in the world of NHRA drag racing, and ultimately get excited for the upcoming 2024 season, which will kick off in March. We're not going to rush the off-season, but we're certainly going to take a peek ahead at what could be coming and should be coming for the NHRA Gator Nationals. As always, thanks for watching and or listening to this episode of the NHRA Insider. I'm your host, Brian Loans, and I'll be back next week with more from inside the gates, walls, and behind the scenes of NHRA Championship Drag Racing.